Well, this morning we continue in our study of the book of Daniel. This morning looking at all of chapter 1. Here we uh, come to one of these familiar stories, especially for those of us who grew up in the church. We heard these things, read about them, had little exercises that we completed. (laughs) For some of us who are older, we had flannel board displays of uh, these stories, but um, they're not just Sunday school stories. This is God's word for us and for all of us. Uh, And so as we come before it, hear the story, uh, but be prepared for uh, what God would have us learn from it as well. So I'll read the entire chapter of Daniel 1. Again, this is the very word of the living God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he, had, that he drunk. They were, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. 
And among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. May he write it upon our hearts this morning. May it bear fruit in our lives. Let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer as we come before his word. Our Father and our God, we ask now that you would bless this time when we come before your word to hear you speak to us. And we ask that you would do that and that you would fulfill the promises that you have made that your word goes out and does not return to you empty, but accomplishes what you purpose for it, and is successful in the things for which you send it. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in abundance upon us, so that our ears and eyes might be open to hear and see what you have for us from your word this morning. Make your word a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, so that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, all of this we ask in the name of Christ, who is our Lord, who is our Savior. Amen. Recently I finished reading a, um, a really interesting book about the uh, Harry Potter series of books. It has an unfortunate title, in my opinion, How Harry Cast His Spell. It's not about spell casting, really. The author is, is a student of medieval literature, and he describes how the, the author of the Harry Potter books, J.K. Rowling, uses all sorts of symbols, names, plot devices, different things that happen in the books that are directly borrowed from this medieval Christian literary tradition. And what she's doing in a very subtle but very real way is presenting a Christian story throughout these seven books. It's meant to show, as the medieval literature did, a development in a person from spiritual immaturity, or not any spiritual maturity at all, to real spiritual growth and maturity. Fascinating, fascinating book. I didn't buy everything that he said, but it's an excellent argument for these books as a a pretty profound uh, work of literature, borrowing upon centuries of, of tradition. And he says the reason that the books are, are so appealing how they cast their spell is what he means by the title. Why they're so appealing to so many people is that they deal with real common themes, common to every human, everywhere. Things that resonate with us. They appeal to our God-given sense of right and wrong. The God-given truth that we all are aware of deep in our conscience. And as I read uh, this analysis of the books, I was struck by something he brought out that I think is a real key to them as, as I read them. The author's repeated uh, use of the idea that what matters in life, or one of the key things at least in life, is to choose what is right instead of what is easy. And book after book, adventure after adventure, the children in the, in the stories, the teenagers really, are confronted with this choice. Do I do what's easy, or do I do what is right? 
And as the books portray, <laughs> choosing what is right is often so much harder, and typically is so much harder than choosing what is easy. Because it comes with, usually with personal consequences, maybe danger, maybe risk, or, or it's just plain harder to do, or people don't like it, and so they persecute you or stand in your way. While, on the other hand, the things that are easy to do are always tempting, they're always alluring. Come, do this with me. And it's not just the, the Harry Potter books, but, but really any good literature has a way of speaking to us on this very deep level. Deal with deep human needs and emotions and experiences. Good literature lifts our spirits with tales of heroes who press on ahead diligently to complete the difficult tasks that are set before them. Or we look conversely at the tragedies, people who should be heroes but who make such terrible choices and experience the consequences of their own folly, Macbeth being one of the classic examples. And you can find these Hercules throughout Western literature, and I'm sure throughout the world as well. Hercules and Odysseus and Beowulf and King Arthur and Robin Hood and William Wallace and Don Quixote and many other heroes. And in our day, the popular heroes of movies and literature, more popular virtually than any other films or or books in recent years, Frodo the Little Hobbit (laughs) and Harry Potter. And then we have before us this morning, Daniel. Daniel of the tribe of Judah, whose story begins kind of like Harry Potter's, with him as a young man, perhaps as young as 13 to 15 years old. But there's one thing that Daniel's story has that Harry Potter's or Frodo's or many of these other heroes doesn't have. It has the advantage of being true. <laughs> and the advantage of being God's very word. Yet many of the, of the themes and ideas are similar, including that one that is so powerful from the Harry Potter books. The importance of choosing what is right instead of what is easy. And what we're going to see as we go through these chapters of Daniel is time and time again, Daniel and Hananiah, and Mishael and Azariah are confronted with the easy choice or the right choice. The right choice being the hard choice. And it begins right here in this first chapter. And I want to explore that idea this morning. But we also can't forget what we talked about a couple weeks ago. That while Daniel and his three friends are the the heroes are the main characters of these stories. There's one very important key character who is at the heart of this book. The one who is sovereign over gods and kings and young Jewish captives. The Lord God of Israel. We have to remember that the book of Daniel, like every other book of Scripture, is ultimately about God. And here we see in the book of Daniel, God at work, God showing his sovereignty. God showing that he is in control. 
explore that idea this morning as well. First, we'll go through the story, and I'll comment on some things as we go through, on key things, and then at the end talk about some, some lessons for us to think about as we ponder God's Word here in Daniel chapter 1. All right, so first, the story itself. We noted a couple weeks ago, verses 1 and 2 set up the context of what's going on. It's the year 605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar has just won a great battle over the Egyptians at Carchemish. And as he's engaged in military activity in that area, he besieges Jerusalem. And Jerusalem gives in. In fact, God gives Jehoiakim, the king, into his hand, Nebuchadnezzar took vessels from the temple and put them in the house of his own God. This is the beginning of God's judgment on Judah coming to pass. The final exile is going to come 18 years later, in 587 B.C. That's still a little bit of a ways away, humanly speaking, but it's coming. And this is the first step in that process. Meanwhile... We have this story in verses 3 to 7, this description of another thing that Nebuchadnezzar takes back with him to his capital in Babylon. Some of the prime youth of Judah, young men, members of the royal family, of the nobility. And not just any of these royal noble sons, but the best of them, the very best, without blemish. The word used there is the exact same word used for sacrifices in the Old Testament law. The lamb, the, the animal, without blemish. These are men without blemish. Perfect, outwardly at least. They have good appearance, it says. In other words, they're handsome. These are handsome young men. But they're also skillful. They're skillful in wisdom. They're endowed with knowledge. They understand learning. They're intelligent men. And it says they're competent to stand in the king's palace. In other words, young men who are capable of being trained to be government officials for the king of Babylon, to serve among his wise men, among his advisors. And they show that capability even at a a young age. And then we learn what these young men are are to be taught. They're to be taught the ways of the Chaldeans, their language probably both Akkadian, which was the native language, and Aramaic, the the language of trade and commerce and treaties. They're going to have the privilege, and it is a privilege, to eat the same food as the king and drink the same wine that the king himself drinks. An education that will last three years, after which they would go out and be tested and take their place in the service of the king. Now think about that. For a minute, just we, we, we think of this in terms of exile, but think of that for a minute in a, from a different point of view. This is an incredible honor. This is college education or graduate education in service to the greatest man on the face of the earth at this time. The best of the best get this kind of service. It's not unlike um, the foreign service exams. I don't know if you've heard of those. People talk about the, the GRE exams after you get out of college, the GMAT, 
the LSAT for law, the MCAT for medicine, all of those tests pale in comparison to the foreign service exams, which are brutal and difficult to pass. I tried. <laughs> These are the men who are qualified to take upon that kind of service and, and pass that kind of test. And exile is still 18 years away. So it's not unthinkable, in fact, I think it's highly likely that many of the families in Judah considered this a great honor for their young sons. My son, serving the king, take it, it's an honor. They've been serving Egypt, Egypt is defeated, so let's serve the new king. Let's make nice with him and gain his favor. Many of them probably thought sending their sons to serve would be a good way to have you know, a connection with the king so that Judah would be treated well. Judah could remain, retain some measure of independence as these young men put in a good word for Judah with the new king. This is the easy thing to do, right? Go along. Get along. Make lemonade out of lemons. But then we read about for the young men who were taken with these captives. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, all four given new names. This isn't an accident. This isn't just so we can, you know, kind of get to know you better in our own language. This is a political act. Every single one of these young men have names that refer to God or Yahweh in some manner or fashion. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah, Yahweh or God, is gracious. Mishael, who is like God? Azariah, Yahweh or God, is help. And everyone gets a new name with portions of their name that show their new allegiance, or at least meant to show their new allegiance, to the gods of Babylon. Molech and Nebo or Nego. And this name change is an indication that really this opportunity for these young men is not for them or for Judah. It's for Babylon. It's for serving Babylon's king and Babylon's gods. It's a message. You serve a new king. You serve new gods. You have a new life. You have new priorities. You're no longer Judean. You are Babylonian. Leave behind your old identity and embrace the new. But in verse 8, we get to a turning point. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. He doesn't protest the name. He doesn't protest being taken. He doesn't even protest being trained to serve. He protests the food, which is an interesting and somewhat curious development. In some way, he felt that eating this food would defile himself. And we don't really know what that defilement was. Some people think, well, it has to do with the dietary laws of Israel. And that's probably not true because wine isn't forbidden by any of the dietary laws. And uh, even eating vegetables might 
if they are prepared incorrectly, violate the dietary laws. So it's probably not for kosher reasons. Some people think of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, which we read, and say, well, maybe it's because the food was offered to Babylonian gods first. This is taking part, if you will, in idol worship. That's possible. But if meat was offered, so would vegetables be offered. And so again, it's probably not a protest against participating in foreign worship. Others, well, they're, they're just vegetarians, and vegetarianism is a better diet. Well, there's no law about that in the Old Testament, and really that's just a modern idea anyway, tied to our own ideas about diet. More likely, it's something more subtle and, and maybe a little bit deeper as well. And I think it's something along these lines. Refusing the king's meat and refusing the king's wine is a way of saying symbolically, we may be captives, but we're not dependent upon you. We may be captives, but we're going to keep our own identity in some way, shape, or form. We're not the kings. We'll serve him. We'll let you call us by foreign names. We'll be trained and learn the language. But in this small way, we're going to keep our own identity. And that's not an uncommon tactic. If you read about people imprisoned or people enslaved, look, you have to, you have to serve. It's forced upon you. But people will find some small way to keep their identity uh, a necklace that they wear, uh, something that they keep and hold with them, uh, a piece of clothing or, or something that maintains that personal identity. And I think it's consistent with what we see elsewhere in the first chapter. Note that not just uh, in, in verse 6, but also in verses 11 and 19, uh, what names are used? They're Hebrew names. And this is, I think, a subtle way of the text telling us They're holding on to who they really are and who they really serve. Yahweh, Elohim, the God of Israel. So they're saying we're gods. Other youths might see this assignment as a tremendous, tremendous privilege. But what they're saying is we see it as what it is. It's slavery. It's captivity. This is evidence of God's judgment on us and on our nation. How can we eat meat and drink wine as captives in a foreign country? How can we rejoice with good food at this time? That's, to me, also an echo of Aaron the high priest and Eleazar and Ethamar in Leviticus 10 after Nadab and Abihu were struck down for offering strange fire. They didn't eat the sacrifice of God, violating God's law. When Moses confronted them, Aaron said, what, we're going we're to celebrate, if you will? That wouldn't be appropriate. And their actions were deemed appropriate. I think in some way, Daniel and his friends are saying, we can't celebrate, we can't feast as captives in a foreign land. And embedded in this action, as I talked about again a couple weeks ago, is 
deep-seated trust that God is in control. Because either this diet of vegetables and water is going to leave them skinnier and less attractive than the other young men, or it's going to work. If it doesn't work, they very well might be martyrs for God. And we don't know which it will be, although the text makes it pretty clear pretty quickly. But Daniel makes a request, and here is an interesting place where we once again see God at work, because it says in verse 9 that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Just a side note, that word translated eunuch can also just mean official. It's not necessarily a physical description. But anyway, that's the common translation. God gave Daniel favor from this official. He's sensitive to Daniel's request, but fears the king. And this is God's work. This is God's work in this foreign man with a foreign God. God's powerful hand working on behalf of his people. And so Daniel proposes a task. Ten days. Ten days. Let us eat only vegetables and drink only water and test us after ten days. Compare us to the other young men. And the official agrees. Now again, stop and think about that for a minute. It's only a ten-day test. What teenage, what teenage boy is going to show much physical change in ten days? I mean, we grow fast when we're that age, but it's a meager test. Again, it shows Daniel and his friends deep trust in God. If God is with us or against us, we only need 10 days to find out. And we're confident that if God wants to show a discernible difference in 10 days, he will. By eating only vegetables. And sure enough, at the end of 10 days, they're better in appearance, they're more handsome, even more handsome than they were, and fatter in the flesh. (laughs) Think about that. They're fatter from vegetables. Tell that to any vegetarian who wants to convert you to their diet. Daniel and his three friends are fatter from eating vegetables after only 10 days. And so they, again, find favor. The steward took away their food and their wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables, it says in verse 16. God is in control. And then it continues in verses 17 to 21. This 10-day blessing is extended throughout their three years of training, and even beyond, because we see that Daniel serves up until the reign of King Cyrus. Some 70 years, Daniel serves the kings, and even the succeeding power, the conquering King Cyrus. God, again, at work here, it says... In verse 17, God gave them, all four of them, learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And to Daniel, he also gave understanding of visions and dreams. An echo of Joseph, captive in Egypt, who was given understanding of visions and dreams for the people there. Here again, God is at work in the lives of these four young men. After ten days, they were handsomer and fatter than the other young men. And after three years, it says they were ten times 
better than not just the other youths, but of every single magician, every single enchanter, every single wise man and official in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Ten times better. It says the king found none like them. So they stood before him and served him. Powerful little story. Standing for your faith, standing for your identity as a child of God. But to go back to, I think, the overarching point of this whole book, the first lesson is just a reminder, again, that God is in control. God determines the paths of men and of kings and of nations. We're told three times in this chapter, God gave. (laughs) God gave Jehoiakim to Nebuchadnezzar. God gave Daniel and his friends favor. And God gave him learning and skill. This shows God actively at work, bringing about his purposes for his plans and ends. God's favor does not depend on our actions. Did he do this because of Daniel and his friend's actions? No. There's nothing in the text that would indicate that is true. He did it because he did it. He did it because God, as we're going to see, is going to use Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah for his purposes. That's why he gives them favor with the eunuch. That's why he blesses them in captivity. Allows them to maintain in some small fashion their own identity and not be assimilated into the Babylonian culture, which would be the easy thing to do. I love the way it says, we still use this phrase today, they were ten times better. That is ten times stronger than your dad. An order of magnitude, as the engineers would put it. But again, is this in response to their behavior? No. It's because God is determined to use these four men to humble kings and to show the falseness of false gods. God is putting them in a position, a high position, a position of power and influence where their behavior is going to attract the attention of the king. He notices them. He knows who they are. They're better than anybody else. And God put them there right in front of Nebuchadnezzar so that he can't ignore them. God's instruments (laughs) right in front of Nebuchadnezzar's face. They're not like the other youths taken into captivity, anonymous servants in some dark corner of the Babylonian bureaucracy. They're serving the king. He thinks he's got something special in his form, and he does. But what he doesn't know, what Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, the prideful king, does not know is that God has him right where he wants him. Predisposed to listen to God's servants. God's wise men who refuse to abandon their Hebrew identity and their service to the Lord God. We know before the rest of the stories begin (laughs) that some amazing things are about to happen. And we also know that it's God who set things up to make them happen. 
So again, God is in control. Well, what about this idea of choosing between what is right and what is easy? Again, think back to this incredible privilege for these young men to be sent and educated in the ways of the Chaldeans and serve in high offices of administration and, and advice. The easy choice, again, is to go along. Eat the king's food? Sure. Assimilate into his culture in ways? Absolutely. Depend on him for my meat and my drink? Yeah, why not? He's the king. Eat, drink, be merry, learn, serve. Accumulate some power and some influence. That's the easy choice. But Daniel and his friends really did take the harder choice to not forget who they are, not to forget who they serve, despite whatever the consequences might be. And how does that relate to us today? Well, in all sorts of ways. What are the many choices that we have to go along with our culture and our society today? There's, there's all sorts of them, but some of them are obvious. The entertainments of our time. I was up in Seattle last weekend. There was a big playoff game. And I couldn't believe how many of my family and friends and others that I saw practically bragged that they skipped church to watch a football game. How disheartening is that? How many churches a week from today are going to cancel worship to watch a Super Bowl game? That's an increasing trend in America. What about the music we listen to? What about the music we watch? The books we read? The clothes that we wear? The way that we act? The way that we talk? We don't need to be Amish. But how are we different from the culture around us? And how do people know that we're different? That we have not abandoned our identity as Christians and our service to our God. Think about social trends. You know one thing that's common among teenagers and young adults today in the church? Hooking up. The, the latest euphemism for having sex. Well, let's just hook up. Meaningless, just for a night, just for fun. Or maybe let's, let's be friends with benefits. Or living together before marriage. Or just living together without marriage. Common among people who name the name of, of Christ. We can go on about abortion. The anniversary just passed for Roe versus Wade. No-fault divorce. Who nowadays rejects the easy choice? We live in a throwaway culture. We throw away our babies. We throw away our spouses. Go get new ones. Disgusting. How many Christians cheat on our taxes? That's coming up. I'm just fudging. It's okay if I don't get caught. A couple weekends ago, there was a conference up in Portland. Hundreds of people showed up for a conference of lectures and fellowship for Christians who support the gay agenda. And it goes on and on and on. It's easy to succumb to peer pressure, the pressures of society, and give in. It's easier to go along. There's less conflict. I don't stick out. Nobody notices me. People like me better. <laughs> but what's the right thing to do? Daniel and his friends were willing to risk things. Whatever consequence comes your way. He says in verse 13 to the 
to the official he's dealing with. Whatever happens, deal with your servants according to what you see. That's a statement of trust, of faith in God. They're not expecting to look healthier and fatter than the other youths. It might turn out the opposite way. And if it does, deal with us. Deal with us. We'll take the consequences. What's the right thing to do? Even if the consequences are are tough, are hard. Think of the Christian bakers, the Christian flower shop, the people arrested for refusing to give certain kinds of service to certain groups. The official kicked out of office, a, a fired chief, for something that he had taught on and written about homosexuality years and years ago. The ridicule of family, the family that abandons you. I think more and more we Christians are facing the choice in our lives. Do what is right or do what's easy. And as Christians, we particularly have to ask ourselves this question in light of of our Savior. Did Christ die to save you so that you could avoid conflict and abandon him when it becomes tough? Did Christ suffer ridicule? Hatred, shame, persecution, but you and I shouldn't? Did he not tell us? Does not scripture tell us? The servant is not greater than the master? Are we not, especially those of us in the Reformed tradition, advocates, believers in God's sovereignty? Do you believe in God's sovereignty? I mean, really believe it in action. Are you willing to accept whatever consequences might come your way from making the hard choice instead of the easy choice? We can ask ourselves, I think, the same question that Daniel and his friends asked. Who do I serve? What king do I really stand before? Yeah, Daniel and his friends stood before Nebuchadnezzar. It's a a metaphor for serving him in an official capacity. They served him. But really, deep down, fundamentally, they stood before the Lord God and served Him. If the Lord God is truly sovereign, then the choice is obvious, even though it may not be easy. You and I know what to do. The question is, will you? Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, indeed, sometimes the choices that we face in life are not easy, and we want to acknowledge that before you and ask that you would give us strength to do what is right, but also wisdom to know what is right. To know what is really a truly difficult choice versus, well, as we read from 1 Corinthians whether it's just knowledge that's puffing us up. We don't, we don't want to be puffed up with knowledge and, and suffer for that cause. But if we are building up in love and we suffer, then may we suffer with joy, with confidence, with contentment and comfort, not found in external things, but found because we are yours. We are your people. May we never abandon that identity, give up our name, Christian, for the sake of the world around us. 
and may you be faithful and kind and gracious to us. When we pray, Father, hear our prayer from your throne room in heaven and be kind and gracious to us. Pour out your love and mercy upon us. Protect us from evil and wicked men. Thwart their plans. But when trials come, remind us that we are yours. Give us hope and comfort and strength in you. And never let us forget that you are sovereign. And that in Christ, and that Christ himself has overcome the world. And so we need not fear. Father, we ask all these things in the precious name of Christ, who is our Lord, who is our Savior, our King, our brother, and our friend. Amen.